Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The equilibrium models macroeconomists engage with contain a fundamental assumption that modern democratic capitalist economies are essentially stable. But the economist Hyman Minsky's great thesis can be summarized in the words, stability is ultimately destabilizing. My guest today has written on precisely this issue in his book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, but from an empirical rather than a purely theoretical perspective, which makes perfect sense. He has been observing and commenting on economics for the Financial Times for longer than would be polite to expose. Welcome to the bunker, Martin Wolf. It's a great pleasure to be with you, and that's a very nice introduction. Martin, I remember reading your pieces around the global financial crisis very clearly. Um, But in your book, you posit that this crisis really began much, much earlier than that. When were the earliest seeds sown? That's an interesting question, perhaps the beginning of time, because my book book actually goes back in briefly about 10,000 years uh, to the history of human social development. But I suppose, and I to some extent already discussed this in my previous big book, which was on the crisis, it was called The Shifts and the Shocks. And I then argued that a proximate cause of the financial crisis was a huge increase in debt, particularly private sector debt in many Western countries. And I argued that that was itself insignificant part due to the immense shock of the entry of China and some other emerging economies, as well as big shifts in the distribution of income. These two forces together created what came to be called the saving surplus. That's a a shorthand, but essentially a condition in which it was necessary for governments and above all central banks to promote credit growth and debt growth in order to generate enough demand in the economy to stabilize them in the short run. But that ultimately blew up in the financial crisis. Now, this comment fits very well with what I'm doing in my new book, because I suppose I go deeper into what caused this series of shocks. For a while, there was this temporary fix of the debt accumulation, which blew up in the financial crisis and revealed economies which were much weaker than many had supposed, and also, crucially, revealed polities, political systems and societies which were much weaker than many supposed. And that then goes back to... 1970s, probably, and the reaction to that in the 80s. You particularly zero in on the collapse of communism. What has a rival economic system's failure to do with capitalism? I think this is a very interesting point, which I don't feel actually I've emphasized enough when I was thinking about this. After communism failed, Western leaders and particularly powerful people within the West came to feel that our systems had won. They were overwhelmingly successful. We didn't need to be concerned anymore about internal instability of any kind because there was no credible alternative model. Mm. The working class, for various reasons, had already become very, very weak. 
So they were pursued what has come to be called uh, hyper-globalization and, and it's often called neoliberalism, an excessive mm. form of liberalism. And I have come to realize that there were some pretty big weaknesses in that. Which is a, a very capitalist idea in a, in a strange sense that competition kept us honest. And as soon as it was it was gone, we were uh, abandoned to inefficiency and excess. One can argue that started earlier. One can argue, and indeed it has been argued, that that's always been an element in capitalism over its history. Karl Marx certainly did. But the point is, yes, I think it is true, though I wouldn't say it's the most important reason, but it's an important reason, mm. that the realization that there were credible alternative models forced uh, Western societies towards a form of capitalism the form of capitalism we saw in the middle of the 20th century, you might call it New Deal capitalism or social democracy or the social market, which cushioned people against the more extreme forms of capitalist exploitation and mm. or uh, capitalist behavior. And in particular, it cushioned them against what I particularly focus on, the, the emergence of a plutocracy. Yeah. Then we, we get the financial crisis that... that is in many ways the sort of explosion of all these symptoms. Why hasn't there been more change after it? I think this is, to me, the great surprise, because immediately after the crisis, which certainly changed my views of the world in important ways, I thought there will be a huge demand for change in the capitalist system. But in fact, that was highly muted, and the attempt of governments of all kind, be they sort of mildly left of center like Obama or mm. uh, right of center like Cameron Osborne, was essentially to go back to the status quo ante, to point mm. out that we were poorer than we thought, so we had a fiscal problem, so there was austerity, and essentially to behave as if nothing really had happened. The interesting thing is that this did indeed lead to a reaction, but it was uh, the right. It, the reaction came far more from the nationalist right uh, yeah. with a strong authoritarian tinge than it did from the left, which you would have thought would be the natural inheritor of this dissatisfaction. The left, it turned out, was pretty discredited too, certainly not effective in making any case for anything new. And when it did, I say with Mr. Corbyn here, well, he didn't do terribly well. So there is a big point here about the success of the right. Now, when I start looking at that, of course, we immediately realize that that's happened before, though I'm not making any direct comparisons. But of course, that's what happened in Europe so famously and catastrophically in the 1930s. Hmm. And the other aspect that has been interesting uh, from my perspective as someone who writes about politics in other European countries as well is that even in countries where the population then uh, dabbled with the left, as it were, it only lasted, broadly speaking, one term. And then they went back to centre politics effectively um, if not right-wing politics. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think voters still feel comforted by a system that failed so spectacularly? Uh, you might be thinking of Greece. I don't know which other countries you are thinking about. But I think there are 
probably two completely distinct reasons for this, but this here, I it's not a focus of my book. But one is that the centre-left had really bought into the, uh, the, the paradigm that existed before um, 2008. Think of the Labour Party here under Blair and Brown. Think of the Social Democrats in Germany, the former communists who became so ultra-respectable in Italy. I could go through so many examples. So, and of course, the Scandinavians, it's obvious. So the left couldn't really disown the system credibly because they were so obviously part of it. Mm. And the second reason is that the more extreme left, the we're going to nationalize everything, we're going to have a completely new paradigm of socially just left-wing politics, I think remained and still remains discredited by the failure of the of the communist system prior to 1989 or 1991, depending on which year you choose. So there wasn't anything to go back to on that side. This left the room open for a very simplistic, but very powerful traditional form of tribal populism. Mm, mm. And this tune, this story of uh, resentment and anger against elites and outsiders simultaneously, as it has proved before, tribalism, if you like, is a very, very powerful and emotional story. And some politicians, notably Donald Trump, were geniuses at this. And uh, in his own peculiar way, Boris Johnson did a pretty good version of that for the, the British temperament. I worked as a, a regulator for a decade, and I was struck by how every case I was involved in was looking at a market that was somehow exceptional, a, a market to which the rules did not really apply. Um, and every case was like that. Do we need a fundamental rethink of economics as a whole, do you think? Because it seems to me that the underlying assumption of you know everyone behaving rationally in their own interest um, all the time has been just fundamentally undermined over the last couple of decades. Well, I think that actually there's already been quite a lot of consideration of that point. As you know, in, in economics, this is called behavioral economics. The Nobel Prize winner, Bob Schiller, has done some very interesting work on how humans are influenced by stories of all kinds. But actually, I'm afraid I'm, first of all, I accept that. We are not rational automata. That's absolutely <laughs> clear. Of course, that's obvious. But I actually think the story, and indeed the story I tell, rather on the opposite side, supports the proposition that uh, the people who were making decisions were perfectly rationally self-interested, and they did <laughs> very, very well out of being perfectly self-interested. The question that was raised to me, and this is the way I think about this, is the question that was raised first by that not very revolutionary figure, Adam Smith, who argued that one of the big dangers for a market economy is that collusion, uh, monopolization, and exploitation. He didn't put in that word, uh, those words. And in, of course, uh, as a classical economist, Karl Marx thought the same thing. He thought the bourgeoisie mm. was perfectly rational. Uh, it's just that made them perfectly exploitative, which, by the way, of course, I don't accept in that way. But the point is, 
it seems to me if you look at the story as a solvent, as a destructive force for uh, the market economy itself, as Smith warned, but in my case, also for politics. I see populist would-be autocrats as in some significant measure a reaction against this, the demagogic alternative, though the alternative may in fact lead to a fusion as it has very frequently done in the past. So I'm not too worried that economics is wrong about self-interest. What economics is wrong about is the assumption that a reasonably competitive economy can be sustained without consistent and active political engagement. And that's where, to me, a proper democracy comes in. Martin, can I throw a bit of curveball at you? Of course. I was looking at money markets for a, uh, for a piece I was writing a, a few years ago. I can't remember the precise figures, but if you look 50 years ago, roughly, 90% of currency exchanges had to do with actual trade, you know, with a, with a thing being traded across borders that necessitated currency ex- exchange. And if you look at it now, it's something like 0.3% of all currency exchange is concerned with an actual trade. The rest of it is speculative. And I just use that as an example to say, are there sectors in our economy who actually actively rely on instability? And is the great mistake that everyone assumes that we're all pulling in the same direction when there's actually really quite large elements in our economic system which are pulling in the opposite direction, which are drawing us towards chaos? Well, this is certainly an interesting set of questions. And this is, of course, as you know, the debate on foreign currency markets in particular goes back a very long way. Uh, A very distinguished Nobel Prize winner, uh, James Tobin, Keynesian economists proposed a tax on foreign ex- currency transactions for this reason. Hmm. I have to say, I am not personally persuaded that the amount of trading in particular commodities, in this case, foreign currency, but obviously there are many more, is a really powerful indicator of dysfunction. This doesn't mean that all these things are particularly useful, but to me, There are other indicators. To me, the most interesting and important was the one I talked about at the beginning, which is the growth of credit and debt. And I think that basically amounts to the leveraging up of much of the economy. And that was, I think, the core of its fragility when the financial crisis came. And it remains so to this day. It is, I think, in addition... Uh, and I've written about this, though it's not in this book, a very powerful indicator of the income distribution problem. Because essentially, with income distribution getting more unequal, a relatively small proportion of the population earns a very large share of the income from wealth, far more than they can spend. So they want to lend to people who don't actually earn enough to cover their spending. And Mm. that leads to a very, very large accumulation of credit and debt within the economic system. Again, a source of instability. So I I think 
but that's because I tend to view this in Keynesian terms, that the core problems are how you generate sufficient demand in a stable way. And I think over a fairly long period of time, that became really hard. Once you've got a credit engine like that floating around, you're going to get some crazy stuff in markets because there's just so much money around. Yeah. Are there alternatives out there that our politicians are shy about or is that layer of governance genuinely out of ideas, do you think? No. The distribution question can certainly be tackled, but it involves doing some pretty radical things with tax and inheritance. Um, I've discussed some of them, but since I want to get things done now rather than wait for the millennium, I don't go into the most radical possibilities. But clearly, we could, in theory, change taxation and distribution if we wanted to. Um, but that would involve jumping into a very different political economy of which we see very little sign. So that's the distributional side. The, uh, a revolution that, as it were, took over all the means of production, well, we've been there and I don't think anyone really wants to do that. Now, there's a completely different set of ideas, which I did discuss in my large last book, which is essentially a transformation of the monetary system and therefore how debt is created in our society. Yeah. These ideas actually go back about a century and one of the most surprising facts is that the Chicago School of Free Market Economists put forward one of the most radical, which is the so-called Chicago Plan, which essentially amounts to nationalizing the money supply. And this would eliminate banking as we know it. It would transform the creation of money into a means of public finance. So governments, instead of floating bonds, would largely finance themselves through creating money. This would, of course, have to be related to how much money society will absorb. And meanwhile, domestic normal intermediation would go through institutions which don't have monetary liabilities. They're not banks anymore they would become asset managers, they would become in more traditional investment banks. Now, many people would argue that, and did argue, that that would be a very inefficient way of doing things because banks are very useful for promoting the economy. And 80 to 100 years ago, I think that was pretty plausible. It's much less plausible now. So I promoted some of those ideas in my earlier book. But just as happened after the Great Depression, when these ideas of the Chicago plan, of which there are many variants, came forward, the resistance is absolutely overwhelming. Nobody wants to think about a restructuring of banking, which I, my view is not really part of the free market at all. In fact, as the Chicago School concluded, it was an anti-free market. So again, unless you're prepared to get into a debate that will go on for the next 100 years and get nowhere, this doesn't seem very fruitful. And that part of that is because it's difficult. And part of it is revolutionary upheavals are not what most people in society want. I mean, the truth is revolutions have always been minority activities and you need a breakdown of civil order of some kind, often in a war, before you get one. So it has to get worse to get better. Um, I don't think that, as you probably realise reading my book, 
I'm, I'm incredibly resistant to that notion yes. because yes. it can get so unbelievably <laughs> much worse. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, you wrote your book at your family's um, experiences and sort of, you know, explaining the real consequences of tyranny, as it were. Yes, I mean, I'm very much a child of Hitler's Europe because both my parents were refugees from it. Most of their wider families were killed. And I root this in the catastrophic breakdown of the world economy in the interwar years. Of course, there were other things, but I argue, I think pretty persuasively, that Hitler would never got into power if it hadn't been for the Great Depression. Um, and then, of course, one has to think of the immense suffering that the communist revolutions also imposed mm. on the people of the Soviet Union, China. So I am very much in as probably realize, I have quite radical thoughts, but I'm also very much influenced by the Burkean tradition that you go for reform, utopia is never an option, and it is unbelievably easy for, for radical breakdowns of society to lead to outcomes far worse than the, the ones you already dislike. Since I don't regard our societies as so bad, on the contrary, I think they're less bad than other societies, I'm very much in the ameliorationist tradition of European thought of the last two centuries and not in the revolutionary traditions of the far left or, God help us, the far right. Um, let me wrap this up. I saw you in an interview um, recently essentially saying, I paraphrase, obviously, my generation fluffed it. I hope yours can do better. Is that a cop-out? I mean, the President of the United States is pushing 80. Our legislatures are packed with people in the 60s and 70s. Your generation is still the one with power and influence. Um, is it a little bit early to check out? Well, I had never expected uh, uh, when I uh, thought about this, I, I created this dedication to my grandchildren some years ago at an early stage of the book, that we would have a president of 80 and the leader of the opposition is, I think, <laughs> 78. Uh, uh, now, that's, of course, not the situation in the UK or in France. So, by and large, people of my generation, I'm in my 70s, are not in power. But the we thought things were going better than they were. There's no doubt about that. And we took the victory in the Cold War, which I welcomed, far too much for granted. That's absolutely clear. But we have left, and the young generation are right in saying this, we have left some gigantic challenges. So you just three. We have, of course, the global environmental challenge, the climate challenge, which we have fluffed, surely. We have an emerging crisis caused by the breakdown in relations between the Western powers, particularly the US and China, which is scary. I mean, how else could it be? And we've got, particularly when China's ally, Russia, a huge nuclear armed power is engaged in a hot war on the borders of Europe. We have an economic system which is not performing very well and particularly not performing well for a large proportion of our populations. And our populations are increasingly tempted or at least tempted by right-wing populists who are, I think have autocratic intentions and absolutely offer no solutions to any kind to any of our real difficulties. And politics isn't doing better than that. These things together suggest we haven't done very well, much worse than mm. I hoped. 
But it is an objective fact that though I still remain of the view that the liberal democracies are incomparably the least bad or best societies there have ever been, they are clearly imperfect. And, but there's one huge hope here. They're, they are potentially self-correcting. It is possible to get rid of bad leaders as long as there are elections. And it is possible for younger people to get engaged in political life in various different ways, public life, and change things for the better. And that must be one's hope for the future. Martin Wolf, thank you so much for your insight and your wisdom. Thank you. Great pleasure. The crisis of democratic capitalism is out now, and I could not recommend it more highly. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. For every complex problem, there's a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong, Mencken once quipped. But is that wisdom, or is it wit? It's not like orthodox economics or politics has delivered what it promised, so maybe, like all scientists, they would be well served by opening their minds to the unorthodox. This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and out. The bunker was presented by Alexandre. Produced by Jet Gerberson. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>